how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at FreelancerClass.com. In this collaboration of interviews, the screenwriters and directors behind IT, Lavender, and Rupture discuss the horror genre. These writers talk about collaboration, writing to direct, the realities of show business, haunting as a metaphor, when the genre misfires, writing for female leads, Hitchcock-level tension, the power of fear, and why filmmaking is a disease. Let's begin with Dan Kay as he discusses the film IT, starring Pierce Brosnan. Well, when I was uh, when I graduated from college, I didn't, I didn't go to film school, but I was really interested in movies. I went to New York City and worked in independent film production for about three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was doing that, I was writing. Uh, I started writing feature scripts, and I got a script that I wrote into the hands of the producer for the Broken Wizard guy. This producer, he was uh, able to help me uh, cobble together a budget and uh, was uh, directing um, my first movie uh, about six months after that. So that was that's sort of how I got started. Um, so where did you come up with the idea for IT? IT came about because I had a meeting with uh, one of the producers, David Friendly. Mm -hmm. Uh, David, David's been, uh, David's been producing movies for years now, and he and I had this meeting just to sort of, he had read, uh, he actually read, I think, Pay the Ghost, and he had liked that script and just wanted to meet me as a writer. Mm -hmm. And when we were meeting, he was telling me about this, um, experience he had with his, uh, with an IT guy at his company, his film company. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's 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 nothing. The events that unfolded are nothing like the movie. But he he got a little uncomfortable with his IT guy, and he realized um, that this guy could access basically all of his information, uh, and there was really nothing that David could do about it. And it kind of really freaked him out. And he was telling he was telling me this, and he said, "Hey, you, know, you think you think there's a movie in here somewhere?" And I said, "Yeah, actually, I do. I think there could be a really." kind of edge-of-your-seat, white-knuckle kind of thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, you know, well, let's, let's see if you can develop something. So that's that's sort of, that's how the idea, that's how that's how it happened. David, David was willing with personal experience, and um, from there I started to develop the movie with him. And um, it's probably about a, I don't know, 
I don't remember specifically, maybe six months to a year process of, of, of developing it, but that's that's how that's how it began. What other kind of research was involved for the film? There was a bit of research. I interviewed um, I interviewed probably four or five IT guys um, at, at various companies, and I also interviewed one guy that was really helpful was there was this um this police officer this LA police officer in the cyber crimes unit who I interviewed who just uh, he was just telling about some of the he telling relaying some stories about some of the criminals they have caught who are who have perpetrated their crimes online. Uh and in talking to this, uh, in talking to this cop, it just it just sort of sparked a bunch of ideas in my head about where I could take the movie, and, and it gave me some some of the some of the big thriller type beats that I could that I could use. Um, so yeah, I know I did. I did do a fair number. I did I did a fair amount of interviews uh, before I started writing the script. Did you have any um, cinematic influences when writing the sadistic character of the IT guy? I, 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 I studied some uh, obsession thrillers mm-hmm. as I prepared to write the movie. Um, two of the great obsession thrillers, uh, at least in the last, I guess, uh, 25, 30 years at this point, uh, Fatal Attraction and, and the Kate Fear remake. I kind of looked at those movies, just, just not, not so much as an archetype for the mm-hmm. IT character, but just, just to see how... Uh, to see how one person's obsession with either a family, as in the case of Kate Fear, or in the case of Fatal Attraction, with another person, how how, how I kind of study how those movies um, you, you put put the protagonist and antagonist against each other. Uh, with in those movies, the the antagonist is often doing things for the protagonist that. Uh, that aren't necessarily, you know, they might not even be in the same room with them, but like, you know, fatal attraction when she, when she boils the kids rabbit. Um, it's just, it's very psychological. The, the, the tactics of the antagonist are very psychological. And that's really what I wanted to do this, um, with the IT guy in this movie. I wanted his tactics to be very psychological, um, where he's, he's having this great influence over his family and yet he's not even, he's not even, he's not even in the same location. So he could have been, in fact, he could have been halfway around the world. But he still could have influenced, uh, had tremendous influence uh, over their lives, uh, and I kind of, I, I just like the psychology of that. What are some of your writing rituals? Like, what are your? Do you get up in the morning? Do you write late at night? Those kind of things. Keep. I try to kind of keep uh, regular hours. Um, so I will almost. I mean, it, it can vary if they're deadlines. I will. I'll, I will write late at night, but I, I actually try to keep. Regular kind of business hours, kind of like a nine to five schedule, but but part but part of that is just dictated by uh, you know, having having a family, having a wife, having a kid. You want to be um, available to them, you know, after the kid gets home from school or when your wife gets home from work. So it's 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 easier uh, for me now just to keep regular, almost nine to five hours with my work. But before I had family responsibilities, there was I would. You know, I could write at night, I could write during the day. I had a lot more flexibility. But right now, it's it's pretty much get up, go to my office, and, and work. 
yes, and then, you know, quit around, around five o'clock. Mm-hmm. When you're writing the Pierce Brosnan's character, um, how did you choose his career? And can you elaborate more on just writing his character and about his family? I, I sort of want to. Uh, I wanted this guy to lose, or, or to, I wanted this guy to have the threat of. I wanted him to be under the threat of losing everything. So I wanted to create a family that was relatable, um, but also, you know, I wanted to, to have a teenage character in there because, typical of many teenagers, they're they're buttonheads with, with their parents, and there's and there's, some, there's some friction in those relationships, which is which is just more interesting than if they're just the perfect family and everybody's happy. Um, I, just, I wanted I wanted I wanted to feel as realistic as possible, um, and I wanted by creating a, a realistic family, um, I wanted to, in a sense, up the stakes for this guy because if he was, you know, if he was a single guy, uh, yeah, he could lose his business and maybe he could even be incarcerated, uh, which would obviously be <laughs> be terrible. But there's something about losing your family that I think uh, hits. He hits an audience much more so than a guy just losing his job or being disgraced at work or even just winding up in jail. Um, so it was just it was just important. That was really where I started. I just wanted to have I wanted this guy to I wanted to create a family that just felt real that um, you uh, you could identify with so you could understand the threat this guy felt when uh, he was basically at risk of losing his family. Mm-hmm. So you've been writing um, for a while now. Is there anything that you've learned over the last um, few years that maybe is different than something you thought in the beginning or any advice you have for future writers? Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, there are a lot of things. The uh, one, one of the things that I learned is just that you have to, as a writer in this industry, you have to just love the process of writing because there's, there's there's a lot that goes you know having being a writer in in Hollywood in movies and television um, you're not just you're you're not just sitting in a in an isolation chamber because you once your work is done you're going to be giving your work to executives producers directors actors and people are going to want to mold and shape their work to to fit their vision um, so it often doesn't become when you're when you're when you're a writer, often uh, what your your vision in your head that you put on the page doesn't necessarily translate to whether it's a TV show or a movie. Uh, it doesn't necessarily translate to, to uh, what you end up seeing on the screen. Um, and as a writer, though, you that's why you have to love the process because you have to you have to accept the fact that you know you're, writing, you're not writing a novel. If you're writing a novel, you have got complete control over the entire world of your story um, there's no other there's there is no one else coming in and uh, shaping or molding your novel to their visions it's, it's your it's your work um, but the, the biggest thing I've learned is that it's that screenwriting is a very collaborative medium so that's why you just you have you have to love you have to love the process you have to love the process of writing and hopefully you also love the process of collaborating because if if you're lucky you have an opportunity to work with other people who are going to give you suggestions and notes and thoughts about something that you've written. So along those lines, you, you, you can't be 
super protective of your work. You have to be open to collaboration because that is the only way you'll survive in this business. I would say to anyone who wants to be a writer, if they're dying to just get their vision, singular vision across, that they should go into again, writing novels or possibly writing plays or, or poetry. Um, but writing for film and television, that's, that's, not, that's not the medium for that. Is this always the case, or do you sometimes like hold on to a certain story that you may want to direct as well? Uh, I, I used to, well, because I started as a writer-director. The first, the first movie of mine that ever got made, I directed. Um, I have not directed a feature since that movie, although I've had other movies made. Um, I, 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 I used to write thinking, okay, well, this one, this one is super close to my heart. This one, this one I'd like to direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is, you know, you want, you, you want your work to get made. And mm-hmm. if, if I'm going to hold on to, if I'm going to hold on to something and say, well, I'm only going to let this out in the world if I direct it. Right. It's, it, 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 it could, it could push, it could push the possibility of this movie going into production back years or, or it might not ever even happen. Right. Um, I mean, I think it depends on what, what your, what your goals are. Uh, if, if you want to be a director and that is, you know, you, if you write, scripts because you want to direct, well, then maybe you do have to hold on to, 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 to a couple of your scripts. If you write because you love writing, like I do, and yes, I would like to continue directing, but at the same time, I like making a living as a writer. I like collaborating with other uh, directors, producers, executives, actors, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Then it's uh, I, because I like that collaboration, I'm, I'm less Right today, I'm less inclined to hold on to something to direct than I used to be. Uh, right. Also, I just know, having been in the business as long as I have, I know the realities of the business and how hard it is to raise money to make a movie. Right. Um, I mean, if I were if I were a, an A-list director, well, that would be different. Um, but I'm not, so I know what it would. You know, I know I know how many years it might take to try to raise money for a movie that I. That I uh, that I've written, and I don't, you know, it, it's I guess I guess your priorities shift um, as you you know the longer you are in this business. Um, now, all that being said, I would still like to I would still like to uh, be able to direct uh, something that I that I've written, and I do hope to do that one day. But it's uh, there's, there's at the moment there's nothing that I there's nothing that I like that I will hold on to and say. I'm only going to let this movie out there if, if I can direct it, right. because I'd rather that the movie get out there than just be sitting, you know, in a file on my laptop. Right. Um, that's, that's that's more important to me. Again, that was Dan Kay discussing the film It. In the second interview, Ed Gas Donnelly discusses the film Lavender. After losing her memory, a woman begins to see unexplained things after her psychiatrist suggests she visits her childhood home. Um, yeah, my back was originally in theater, like way back when now it seems, but uh, uh, my dad was a prominent sort of theater director in, in, in the 70s in Canada and founded a theater, and so I sort of grew up in, in that environment and started directing theater um, 
and then slowly, you know, I was always interested in film, but, you know, at the time it seemed very technical and um, expensive and, you know, as you could go and make a, you know, a play at a friend show for next to nothing to make a movie seems like just out of my league. And then, you know, it was right around the time when, like, the Canon XL1 was coming out and, like, some of these you know, cheap mini-DV cameras that, that actually looked somewhat filmic uh, were accessible and I worked just, I ended up taking a family friend as a producer and I just got a job as a director's assistant on a movie and uh, it kind of just demystified the process from a technical perspective of like, oh, I don't need to know how to do every one of these jobs. There's other people to to delegate to. And so suddenly it all started seeming much more feasible and I, as I started just doing short films and then that eventually, you know, going to music videos and a few years later, um, my first features. That was, that's, that's the arc. Mm-hmm. And your first feature was This Beautiful City, is that right? Yeah. Um, did you write that one as well? I did, yeah. How did you kind of get into writing? How did that kind of come together with the directing? Um, I mean, I guess I started, I mean, like, even in high school. Like, there was, I always did writing. I get to, it's funny, I, I think I've gone through phases where, like, I enjoy one more than the other. But uh, I've always done it. It's funny, I haven't been asked that question, so I have to seriously think. But, uh, um, I think, you know, just there was, I, cause I, I would, certainly in theater, I would direct a lot of things that weren't mine and work on my own on the side. And, you know, in film so far, everything I've done, I've at least been, you know, one of the writers on. I mean, this next movie that I'm going to do, which I, I can't talk about because it hasn't been announced, but, I mean, that'll be the first movie I've done that I'm not a writer on. But, uh, um, yeah, I don't know, that, that process is always just kind of, for me, the two just, in fact, I also edit, up until now I've edited everything I've done. I guess they all felt like forms of writing. I always sort of felt like, you know, the script is one version of writing. You know, the director part of me sort of like rewrites it as it do it, and then the editor looks at all the mistakes the director made and, and then rewrites it once again. So for me, it all felt like part of the same process, um, especially by doing those three jobs. Um, so I didn't, I stopped really separating in some way, like what, what one did and what the other was. Mm-hmm. Have any of your ideas like changed during the process between writing, directing, and editing? Um, is there anything that like completely changed about a film you were making? Oh yeah, I mean like monumentally. <clears throat> I mean my second movie, Small Town Murder Songs, um, was in, it, it couldn't be more different in terms of how what the script was and then what the final result was. And some and some of that came from like oh there were certain things I might have sh- you know shot that. I mean, from the biggest thing I came with, I didn't need as much. And that was all what I always thought. I thought I would need all these things. But then when I actually, you know, we started cutting the movie, it became clear that we didn't. And I could, I, you know, I didn't need to, I could be much more succinct. And even though it was a pretty sparse film, I just, you know, there was a lot of time and pace that just was getting eaten up by sort of whole scenes that were not accomplishing enough. And that, for me, I always started to, like, develop the, 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 when looking at a scene, it was like, you know, for me, it has to accomplish at least two things. Like, you can't just be there for character development or just for plot or just for theme. So it's like, if a scene is only performing, you know, accomplishing one of those, then it's probably not pulling its weight. If there's a way to combine it with something, so, okay, this is now really forwarding, now it's not just forwarding plot, but actually it's forwarding this, this main character arc or somehow, but, you know, I, I find sometimes you put in a scene just to, for, if it's just there for exposition, I guess for me, those are often the ones that get cut, and I'll throw that exposition as ADR into some other, into some other scene. But the, you know, for me, the whole sort of structure and story of that movie did particularly change. And there, you know, there are others like Lavender is fairly close to 
um, what, what the script was. But even still, there's definitely a bunch of scenes that we cut out and a few ideas that we changed and, you know, um, just in terms of the order, through by changing the order in, in which certain things happen. Or, um, and some of that's just a response, I think, to seeing the performance and getting, and getting inspired. I think that's always the... You know the the script. I always say like the script can't be just a bible because it doesn't exist on its own. It has to be. A, I mean, it's, a, it's all about at the end of the day the movie and the the I have to put the writer's ego aside when I direct it, and I have to put the director's ego aside when I when I edit it. And, and it's it's just an all I see it at least as just one constant process until uh, until suddenly it's on a screen in front of people. Mm-hmm. Where did the original idea for Lavender come from? And my co-writer Colin, it was sort of his original idea, the basic story, and you know he'd given it to me years ago, and you know I, I liked it, but I, I couldn't quite figure out like what it meant to me. And then he did some more work on it, and eventually I actually hired him to do more work on it. We did it for a while, and we sort of got it to a place, but still not quite where it made we you know weren't getting traction with it. And also we put it in a drawer, and then later. You know, I started work writing it, and we, we would go back and forth. So it, it, it's one of all the movies I've been involved with. It's the one that it has the most, in some ways the most nebulous in terms of where the inspiration starts. Because certainly Colin had an initial idea, and then I got inspired by that and trained, changed it in, in, in a different direction, handed it back to him. So it really was like a weird, like it was probably over seven, eight years that this the development kind of. I mean, not constantly. We'd work on it for a few months, put it in a drawer, and come back to it. There was always something that sort of drew us back in terms of the idea of, you know, using I think sort of like the idea of a haunting as as a metaphor in terms of memory, and not so much that ghosts are ghosts, but the idea that ghosts are, you know, sort of you know suppressed memories trying to make trying to make their way to the surface. And there was something about that kernel of an idea that just resonated with us. But the trick was always figuring out kind of the why now of the story, like why do the events in the movie happen now, like what. Is it in the, in the protagonist's life that puts her in a place where these things can suddenly happen more than just, oh, coincidence, like 25 years after these events, it suddenly happens, or uh, just a random encounter? I wanted, we, sort of, we wanted to find a way to ground it in something more, more meaningful to, to, to the characters. And that took a while to really figure out. And, but I think once we did, like, it was just a kind of a moment where, like a watershed moment, when things started to click and come together. And, um, and once we found that, it, you know, it just started ticking. And, it wasn't not long before we were actually making the movie. Mm-hmm. Was there any outside research involved, like anything with her, like psychological disorders and that kind of thing? Um, no, I mean not, nothing beyond, frankly, light reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, because we don't explain it in depth, um, there was you know a little bit of a, bit of a minor amount, and just in terms of like. You know, a doctor talking about specific areas of the brain responsible for memory. Um, but, there, you know, so there was a minor amount of, but not, you know, more from a technical perspective than a, uh, um, you know, in depth clinical perspective. Mm-hmm. What were some of the cinematic influences for this film, either as a writer or as a director? Um, I mean, I mean, one of the bigger influences, at least visually, that I'm always inspired by is the, like the. I, mean, I guess it's probably like The Shining and the others were like certainly two movies that. Um, I mean, The Shining just because it's, except like a stunning like, visual piece, but and the others, what I that was the movie that really interested me in the genre because it, for me, I just thought it was like a wonderful character story and like with great performances that happened to be set in a you know, sort of creepy supernatural world and sort of for me, as someone who's not. Um, 
you know, the biggest genre fan. Um, yeah, it, it's always I, I, I'm intrigued by genre, but I, 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 for me, it, for me to believe it, it has to be like superbly acted, and it has to like, the characters have to be believable, and that is always I, I think can sometimes be a where the genre really misfires, where it's like it's more about like oh let's let's scare people and let's throw logic and character to the wind, but uh, um, but a movie like the others, what I what I was just I was like mesmerized by Nicole Kidman's performance and just thought it was just so well done. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was just for me. Like I would say, similar to Sixth Sense, where you just got like a great story and great performances, and it, the whole thing just suddenly comes together and makes sense. You don't even think of that necessarily as a as a horror movie, but just as like a, you know, just a, a great movie that happens to be supernatural. I noticed. Uh, I think you mentioned the Sixth Sense. I noticed the color red was used a lot in this film as well as that film. Was that like meant to be, or was that playing homage to anything? Well, I mean, from a technical perspective, it just uh, the movie was meant to be set originally in um, in fall, which would have had a much sparser palette. But then suddenly, when we were shooting in in June, we were like lush green fields. Like the one color that would pop against the, that palette is red. So, I mean, I was definitely aware of the sixth sense use of it. And, um, this is, you know, it's, it is only, you know, it is tied to some of the supernatural elements um, in this movie. But, you know, that wasn't the original intention. But when we were limited with what, uh, you know, when we were, the whole movie was meant to be much more a palette of, like, light, uh, like, you know, like straw colors. And, and uh, cause then suddenly, you know, I think I can't remember what we university talked about. I think it might have been blue was going to be the color. But now with the palette we were working with, blue just would have been, you know, it would just gotten swallowed by the background. Right. What did you find to be the most difficult step in writing this film? It really was figuring out like, the why now, because <clears throat> the original version of it, it was you know kind of random. Like, oh, 20 years after the events happened, suddenly weird things started happening, and the character was um, sort of at a pretty happy, stable point in their life, and then suddenly bad things happened, and by the end of the movie, they basically just get back to where they were at the start of the film, which for me, like, that kind of means the movie doesn't really accomplish anything. It's like you throw someone in peril, and they then escape peril. But I was much more interested, like, what if the movie, if his character has a pre-existing condition, like the inciting incident is really, like, long before the movie in some ways, and by ultimately undergoing the trials of this, of, you know, of the movie, the character has a catharsis that actually sort of heals and then makes them move forward. You feel that there's actually a sense of greater accomplishment rather than you know, if you just move a classic horror movie, you move into a haunted house, bad things happen, you escape with your life. That doesn't, like, for me, thematically, there is, well, there really isn't any theme in that, in that film necessarily. It would just be, you know, a uh, straight genre. And I'm much more interested in how can we actually tell a story that, you know, exists beyond just the surface of the genre. Mm-hmm. When you kind of do move into the genre aspects, how do you like, decide kind of what's scarier, what you want, what angle you want to go with, and that kind of thing for a horror movie, like, or a scary movie. I don't know. You know, it's just kind of, I mean, uh, it's a combination of aesthetics and, because I actually find dread, I mean, you know, much more um, effective than a scare. And it goes back to that sort of like classic, you know, Hitchcock quote, I'll paraphrase, which is like, you know, you're sure to people having lunch and, and uh, you know, a bomb goes off, you startle the audience for like a second, but if you, you see people just having lunch and you, 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 you know, tilt down and see a bomb and then just watch the meat, it's like, the, you're like, like when's it going to go off? And the whole scene is suddenly imbued with a massive amount of tension. And that is what I actually find much more riveting than, than the scare sometimes. It's more the dread and the fear of what's going to happen and to play off the audience's imagination versus the, um, than the delivery. And that's, so I guess, 
I, that's what I find much more effective to me, and that's so I think that's what I tend to focus on. I mean, obviously, there are things that are startling and scary, and, and you just sort of find those as you go. But the, for me, the bigger fundamental that I'm always interested in is like what it's it's creating a sense of fear of what's to come before you actually see it. Can you talk a little bit about the logistics of your writing process? Do you, do you, do you write with a partner, or do you write alone certain times a day, that kind of thing? Um, I procrastinate many times a day, but um, uh, <laughs> the writing, um, I, I write on my own. Um, I used to, I think, write more like in a lot of cafes and bars, but I mean, now that I've got two kids, I tend to write more at home. But uh, um, I mean, for me, I mostly just, I, I just point form ideas out a lot in a notebook and um, really just sort of, you know, whether it's a basic idea for a movie or you know, some kind of element, and then, it, you know, it sort of sits in my mind for a bit, and then I'll go back and, and start filling it out. But I think once I sort of point form, just a start, and then when I really get into it, like figure out the whole structure and, and within a few pages of what the movie is and where it goes, at least what my sort of first thesis statement of that is going to be, and I can I can see kind of the beginning, end, beginning, middle, and end of the movie, then I can dive in and, and sort of, and you know, shoot off a draft quite quickly. Whether it'll be good or bad, but I mean it'll at least be representative of, of that idea, and then you know rewrite as, as necessary in sort of gauging how how uh, how effective it was at my, my hour world, how good a job it's writing. So, um, but that's that's pretty much been the way I've done everything. It's always just I don't really do like I've never been someone who sort of writes exploratory ideas or stuff, which I think maybe is more effective in prose, but. Um, I've always, I guess, because I also have always directed and have also edited. I always really try and see them, like you know, the, the movie, and I, I sort of see how I direct it. And I, I, I see the process. I, I guess I personally don't see my job stopping at, at just the script because I, even when I'm hired to write something that I may or may not end up directing, I have to sort of imagine directing it and seeing that result. Um, just, to, uh, yeah, I don't. Cause I, that's just the way I guess my my brain works. I see the. It's just really one step in the process, and I'm always just trying to imagine the final movie and not just the, not just the script. Where do you think um, novice writers or, or, or new filmmakers waste time in the beginning? Where do they kind of spend too much time on their efforts versus something else? Well, I didn't even spend too much time making short films. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think certainly they're a great um, sort of tool to... They're a great playground to try stuff and to try ideas and, and to and frankly and to hone your craft and to ultimately meet peers like going to film festivals and actually meeting you know peers was like such an important part of the process for me like creatively and seeing other movies and so that was one of the big advantages to make a short film and you film tour with it um, but uh, you know I, one of the big mistakes I you know I kind of made when I got some you know I was getting some attention people were liking some of the shorts I didn't have a, a feature script and. You know, the, the second cardinal sin was after I made my first feature. I certainly did not have the second feature script ready. And I, so, you know, someone was like, wow, that was really great. What, did, what else do you want to do? And I didn't have an answer. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, having – I personally like to write – you know, I think the another message you can make is trying to just work on one script and, and nail it and spend too long on it. Because one of the things I personally find is um, that sometimes you just need space away from it. And that was definitely the case with Lavender was – you know, we had gotten it to as good a place as we could with where we were at in our lives and, and our careers, and then it just needed some space to, for us to come back to it later. So, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of, like, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm writing, like, eight to ten different things at, at any given time, not necessarily, and obviously not, like, the same day or week, but 
I'm like, oh, I'll get a script to a certain place and then, you know, maybe get some feedback on it or walk. if I'm bumping on something, just walk away from it and jump back to one of the others. So that kind of like leapfrog, um, always then when I come back to it, I find I just got like a renewed sense of objectivity and fresh ideas that, whereas if you just keep like slaving away at the one thing, I think you can just kind of like, you can't see the forest for the trees anymore. Again, that was Ed Gass Donnelly talking about the film Lavender. In this third interview, Stephen Schamberg talks about his films, Fur, Secretary, and Rupture. There is a little bit of a sound quality problem with this third interview. Um, if you can't hear it due to the technical problems, it is also available in print form on the website creativescreenwritingmagazine.com. I wasn't one of the kids who grew up with a uh, camera and uh, some overwhelming desire to make movies when I was really young. That was not the case. Your films are very different. What films did inspire you growing up or as you got into filmmaking? Well, the main thing that influenced me, I think, the three things that influenced me was that um, I had a uh, aunt who was a painter and um, uh, I used to go to museums a lot and look at a lot of visual art. Um, but I had two parents who were psychiatrists, and they used to have their dining room conversation at night was about their patients. They would talk about their patients, and so I got to meet. I got to um, sort of you know, front row seat to the complexities and evolution of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say more than anything, that's really at the heart of what interests me in, in filmmaking is people and their minds mm-hmm. and how their minds work and the way in which that can get expressed one way or another. So it just reminded me of something very interesting that Joel Sternfeld, that photography teacher, said, it is, and I, it, it struck me such a crazy thing to say, but um, it was very interesting. And that was, he said, no great photographer was ever interested in photography. Mm-hmm. And I remember grappling with that for a very long time and uh, thinking, first off, how could that possibly be true? But what it pointed me towards was, oh, you know, that's just a medium to express and explore, you know, what interests you. And it's what interests you that is at the, you know, sort of heart of things. So it's not the medium per se. Um, I mean, ultimately, it does become about that to some extent, of course. And, you know, you get infatuated with various aspects of whatever medium you're working in. But um, at the heart of it is something, uh, there's something below that. All of your films, uh, Secretary and Fur and and Rupture, seem to revolve around that personal discovery. Do you begin with an idea for a character or an idea for a plot first, usually? You know, I don't begin with either of those. I actually just begin with some image, some singular image that kind of goes through my head. Uh, It can be something very simple. Um, or it can be, you know, an, an entire sequence where I'm seeing something happen. But that tends to be um, a sort of 
involved. It isn't, it isn't really even the question that I would ask about whatever that image is in, in my head. The first question I would ask is, what's going on here and who is it happening to? And I might not even know that for a while. So it tends to emanate really from uh, the feeling of a room or the look of a landscape or uh, some, even some, some set where nobody is in the room. Can you think of an example for any of these films of what your first like inspiration was? Well, um, for Fur, it was actually, uh, it sounds kind of crazy, but I mean, there were, there were two things that, I mean, I was, uh, only one step back. I, I, DNA Arbus was extremely important to me mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and her images were sort of the origin of a aesthetic that has melded with a lot of other things by now. But it was a very important experience for photographs when I was a kid. And the, so the, the image of uh, a hairy person, someone covered in hair, which was not a photograph that the Arbus took, but somehow was a clue to how to make a movie about Arbus. And uh, there have been people like that with that particular disease, not quite to be, well, there actually have been a couple of people who have had it to the extent that Downey has it in that film. But that movie started with just the idea of like a hairy guy. And then I started wondering, well, who is he? What does he represent? And uh, could the movie about Dan Arbus be told through her experience of this guy? And so all those kind of questions opened up just from that singular thought. All three of these films have strong female leads. Is that something that you choose, or is that something that kind of just, how does that all come about? Uh, well, other people have asked me that question, and I'm going to give you the same answer that I gave them, which is <laughs> okay. uh, really the answer that, uh, it's really the answer that Kieslowski gave when he was asked that question about red, white, and blue, you know. Uh, why did he make three movies with three female protagonists? And, um, he basically said, well, women are more attractive. I prefer to look at them, and they're more complicated and more interesting than men. And I basically feel that way. I'm, I'm more drawn to women. I'm more interested in women. And, um, you know, you spend a hell of a lot of time making a movie looking through the lens of somebody and then sitting with them in the cutting room. And I, I haven't had much of an urge to... Uh, do that with a guy. So that said, I kind of recognize what, you, what you're saying is the next couple of movies that I'm making uh, or trying to make have very strong male protagonists. Enough, enough for a while, I think. Well, in Rupture, it, it seems like it's necessary that the lead protagonist is a woman. Um, there's issues with fertility and things like that. What was the original inspiration for Rupture? Um, well, 
there's a Japanese movie by Teshizahara called Woman in the Dunes, which is a captivity movie about a guy who is held prisoner by a woman who lives at the bottom of a pit in the sand dunes. And it's an incredibly beautiful movie that I've always loved. And it, it, it made me interested in captivity movies because um, it generates a lot of energy immediately to have somebody held against their will, but it also becomes a means by which some self-discovery and, and personal transformation can occur. And if you look at sort of my lists of movies I want to make just over the years, there will always be, at some point in the list, what's the captivity movie? Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen King's Misery with James Conn and Kathy Bates, that's another captivity movie um, where self-discovery is, is uh, forced upon somebody. So it's, it's a form that has been done quite a bit, but it, the attractiveness to me is that it lends itself to a person um, in a sense facing their demons and, and having to uh, go through some kind of fundamental shift in, in who they think they are. Mm-hmm. This film almost takes it a step further with, with personal feel, uh, personal fears. How did you kind of come about what her personal fears might be in the film? Well, the issue there is um, it's really a filmic problem, um, and that is that there's many, many personal fears, probably as many personal fears as there are people. Um, But the filmic problem is you have to be able to show something. You have to be able to see something. You have to be able to put it on screen. Uh, It has to be visualizable. Um, And it has to be powerful. And and in the case of this film, you know, it it has to be, um, to some extent, uh, iconic. So it can't be so particular to, um, you know, meaning the Casey's character or any of the other people who are at the facility where she's taken. It can't be so particular that we as an audience need a whole giant backstory. It has to be pretty easily um, relatable and digestible and communicable. So that took us through um, or eliminated a lot of things that one could be afraid of. And there were others in the script, and, you know, we kept turning and hunting and hunting and saying, well, what are the ones that we need and what are the ones that are going to sort of be the most quickly connected uh, to by the audience? And that's where we came to what we so I read that you know there was a I think it was a ten year gap between Fur and this latest film, and you've you've tried to get some projects going, and for whatever reason they didn't come through. Did did those all kind of come together to make this film, or is it a completely new idea for you? This is an anomaly. I mean, other than say the fact that I do love captivity movies and and always you know sort of was was looking for it uh, in myself to make. Um, everything else that I was trying to make and trying to make now and developed or wrote during the time um, between Fur and Lecture, um, all of those movies are what um, 
somewhat pejoratively in Hollywood would be referred to as movies about people. <laughs> Maybe the hardest movies to get financed now, movies about people. Um, I interviewed Ben Younger not long ago. He just did the movie Bleed for this. He had a similar story where it took him about, like, from his first film to his second was about ten years. How do you? How did you keep going? Like, what inspired you to just um, not leave direction and just and stay a filmmaker and keep trying, keep writing? Man, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think it's like a disease. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like uh, in uh, in Blue Velvet. Isabella Rossellini says to Kyle McLaughlin, you put your disease in me. And he looks at him and says, but I'm not diseased. But in a way, he is diseased. In a way, he did put his disease in her, whatever that might be, that disease. You know, they asked David Lynch, well, what is his disease? And he never answered the question. And in a sense, it's a disease. You know, Hollywood puts it into you, the, the size of the screen puts it into you, or the child that puts it into you, or... Um, you know, in my case, the movies I want to make feel like splinters in my eye. And until I pull it out and make it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. And the only way to make it stop hurting is to make it. Mm-hmm. So the unfortunate thing is, there are several movies that I'm trying to make now, they're all splinters in my eyes, and it's very hard to get the financing. It's very hard to get anybody to pay attention to anything anymore. Mm-hmm. If it's not like a huge payday for the actor uh, or a overtly commercial movie, which the system gravitates towards almost exclusively, mm-hmm. so it's it's a huge it's a huge problem for people like me. That's for sure. Has anything about your style um, as a filmmaker changed over those fourteen years? Is there something you do differently now than you did in the beginning? I mean, I think one of the things for me is that um, I, uh, I'm less interested in rushing through things. I mean, I think that's probably true of, of a lot of filmmakers that they, they, they get older, but B, um, resist the pace of the culture, which is faster and faster and quicker and quicker. It makes me want to be uh, more contemplative within the. This is not particularly applicable to Russia, but it is, although it is to some extent. But it just makes me want to take my time, and I and I have a lot more. And I have a lot of confidence now in what that means in terms of staging and the length of a shot and how long you can make an audience wait and so forth. I mean, one of the keys to Russia, you know, is that you don't know what's going on for a very long time. And the audience um, is not given information by me uh, for a really long time. And that is, to some extent, one of the kicks of the movie is how you are put into the position that you never pay for them. She doesn't know what's going on, neither do you. But it's a lot longer than you would expect as an audience. I really like that. That's crazy. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about the film we haven't already discussed? It's a um, very creepy movie about about uh, what is what what is it that um, what is the best relationship that uh, that we can have toward our own fear? Mm-hmm. 
what is the best, what is the way in which, uh, what is the relationship between our fear and the possibility of uh, change and real uh, self-realization? And how do we deal with that? Um, how does each person deal with that? You know, that's, that's really what the movie is about um, on a sort of spiritual level. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block, which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin, William Monahan, and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at BrockSwinson.com. B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com.